as we continue studying this book, and it's kind of a, a challenging book, to be honest. You know, it's a, it's a book almost written from somebody who's negative, somebody who's a skeptic, somebody who's a mocker, somebody who's skeptical, and so uh, it's challenging. I think the world needs to know that there's a book like this in the Bible in God's Word. It doesn't have a bunch of cozy cliches, you know, that Christians usually uh, articulate. It's actually filled with questions and complaints, really. It's Solomon's view uh, of vanity that sometimes, man, it even borders on insanity. You read this and it's kind of crazy. And at the same time, while he's sharing all these things, he's sending like these mixed messages that are right on, that are God's word. And so you have to kind of work your way through it. Uh, to be honest, the book of Ecclesiastes can be confusing if you didn't have the rest of the Bible. But that doesn't mean it doesn't belong in the Bible. I, I think it's here to help us think more deeply on these things. And even like, for example, you guys, I've been a Christian for 30 years, man. And so I've been in the church and pastoring and all that kind of stuff. And you forget, you know, what it's like out there, what people are thinking, what they're going through. There are some people out there who wish they never lived. There are some people out there like that. And so this book actually talks about that. We're going to read that tonight in Solomon's words. And so, you know, when you look at Solomon, it's an interesting figure. I mean, here is a guy who embraced the gift of life. He embraced his purpose in life. And then eventually he came to a place where he despaired of life. He, he didn't even want to live anymore. But that's what happens, you guys, in this world that we live in, you know. Um, when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, I think in many ways, uh, the easy way to remember it is that he's trying to describe life under the sun, S-U-N. He's trying to describe life on earth, life on, on planet earth. But, but we have to contrast that with life under the sun, S-O-N. It's a completely different life. When, you know, for example, how many of you guys, when you go outside sometimes, you know, when the sun moves, you move because you're trying to stay out of the sun. Do you guys ever do that? <laughs> Some uh, um, of us don't want to, you know, get sun cancer, whatever it is, skin cancer. And so, you know, you're moving because you're trying to stay like out of the sun. And I, and I think in one sense, that's the temptation of the world with Jesus. Like they're just trying to keep you out of the sun, out of him, out of Christ, because he's the savior of the world. It's a, it's a crazy thing. And so um, for us, one of the things I was thinking about was our Pledge of Allegiance. You know, it says uh, one nation under God, under God. And that's the key. You know, will you live your life? Will we live our life under God? What does that mean? What does it mean to live your life under God? That means that you don't call the shots. That means you're not the boss. You're not the driver. You're not the head honcho. You yield yourself, you submit yourself, you bow down to the God who made you and the God who loves you and the God who knows what's best for you. He tells you how to think, he tells you what to say, he tells you where to go, what to do. He tells you everything because he loves you. And so you have a choice. You can live under the sun, S-U-N, and have all the fun on this world and this earth, but you're going to be sorry one day. Or you can say, I'm going to live my life under God. Under God, yielded to God, under the Son, under Jesus. And that's why I'm really beginning to like this book a lot. I was reading about this one guy named C.T. Studd. 
He was a missionary and uh, had an interesting life. How many of you guys know what's the most popular sport in the world? What's the most popular sport in the world? Soccer or football, depending on what language you use, right? Okay, so and does anybody know what the second most popular sport in the world is? Cricket. Cricket, yeah. So I think uh, for last I checked, um, soccer was at 3.5 billion and cricket was around 2.5 billion, somewhere around there as far as fans and followers go. And so this guy, C.T. Studd, he was a famous cricket player. He was, man, kind of like LeBron James of nowadays, right? And so, but he was really young, and one day, this is in the late 1800s, one day some missionaries came to his house and they shared the gospel with him. At first he didn't want to do it. At first he was like, no, I don't want that, I don't want that. But somehow they just kept talking to him, and eventually he got down on that place on his knees and he accepted Jesus into his heart as the Lord and Savior of his life. And so here's this famous sports figure playing cricket, And then what ended up happening was uh, he went for the next six years. He was a Christian, but he was a nominal Christian. He didn't share Jesus with anybody. He didn't tell people about the Lord. He didn't live the life. There wasn't really a passion for the Lord. But then one day he went to a Bible study. It was kind of like a meeting, and D.L. Moody was teaching. And when D.L. Moody was sharing and D.L. Moody was challenging and D.L. Moody was just saying, hey, you know, you got to live your life under the sun, under God, it was really cool. Uh, C.T. Studd was inspired. C.T. Studd, uh, Studd he, uh, he said, yes, I want that for my life. And what he did was he turned away from the things of the world, and he started following the Lord. Next thing you know, he goes to China. How many of you guys have heard Hudson Taylor? You guys remember him? He started serving in China. He, he learned the Chinese language. He ate the Chinese food. He even dressed like the Chinese. Uh, At the age of 25, and so all this happened when he's really young, at the age of 25 years old, he receives an inheritance from his uh, parents, and it was one of those inheritances that say you can't get the money until you reach a certain age. So when he was 25, he knew the inheritance was coming, and you know what he did? He actually gave it away. He started writing checks, you know, to people like George Mueller. He started writing checks to orphanages and places where he could just give the money away. And then when there was about uh, 3,400 pounds left uh, to the inheritance, he decided to give that to his fiancée. An interesting thing, his fiancée, Priscilla, you know what she did with it? She gave it away. They all gave, they gave all that money away. 3,400 pounds back then was close to about $480,000 today. So imagine, imagine how much money he gave it all away. And they started serving the Lord, first in China, then in India, then in Africa. I mean, they served the Lord all the way till they were 73 years old, 71 years old. He had a heart attack. It didn't slow him down. They did it to the end. And what we find is that here was a man who said, I'm not going to live my life under the sun, S-U-N, and get all the things the world has to offer. No, I'm going to live my life under the sun, S-O-N. I'm going to have Jesus lead me. Now, I was talking to my son about this, and we were saying, yeah, it doesn't mean everybody gives all their money away. Don't think that that's what I'm trying to tell you to do because God has to lead every individual. doesn't mean you stop playing sports and becoming a missionary or a pastor or whatever it might mean. But it does mean that you have a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God. He talks to you and he tells you what to do in life. That's how we're led. And that's how God led him. 
And as he understood the eternal value of those things, it's so cool the way that his life ended up. And he's a good example for us. At the end of the study today, I want to share one more thing about him that's going to blow your minds. And so that's my way of keeping you here to the end of the study. (laughs) So look here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. It says in verse 1, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun. There it is. And it is common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction or or disease. That's what he says. And so here's a guy, he says he has all the money to buy anything that he wants, and then Solomon says, but he can't, even, he can't even enjoy it. He says, that's evil. It's not fair. You know, in those days, in that world, it wasn't uncommon for a foreign nation to invade the land and take it all away. It could be the fruit that you planted that season. It could be everything you worked for all your life. You know, that's what they would do. And you see it throughout the history of, you know, of the Jews. And so I think in one sense, Solomon uh, 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 subconsciously was concerned or worried about that. You know, that someone's going to come and take it all away, if not for himself, probably for his children or the next generation. Because we know that was something that happened back then. Moses warned about it in Deuteronomy 28:33. It says, a nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor And you shall not only be oppressed and crushed, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. And so that was God's warning to them that that would happen. Foreigners would come in. They would take it all away if you continued in your sin. That's what God said. And so you read the story. It happened to Israel frequently, uh, including uh, from the Babylonians. You guys might remember that one. Something Jeremiah wept over in Lamentations chapter 5 and verse 2. He says, our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. And so, you know, you got all this stuff, but someone comes in and they take it all away. So it could be a military invasion. It could be something as simple as someone robbing you, a crook, an embezzler, you name it. You know, we got a prayer request yesterday from Caesar. I don't know if you guys read the prayer request or not, but here was a guy that was submitting a request on behalf of his two uncles and one nephew, and they had been kidnapped by the cartel in Mexico. And so what happened? Thank God he sent the request in, and he said that his uncle and his nephew were freed. They were released. But you want to know what? These kidnappers, they took everything from the family. They took their livestock. They took their land. They took everything they worked for all all their life. The cartel took it and they had to flee. And so thank God his other uncle was released today. But this kind of stuff really happens. And Solomon says, that's bogus. That's bogus. Here we worked all our life and, and now someone comes and takes it all away. And Solomon here, he says, you know, it's, it's vanity. It's an evil affliction that we see going on in the world that we live in. And it can happen in many ways. I remember a friend of mine who used to work, I used to work with, and he died just days after his, he retired. You know, he was uh, saying, you know, I'm going to enjoy my life after my retirement. He worked hard all his life for that day, uh, but that day really never came. 
I mean, it can happen in different ways. You know, you can die. Someone can take it away. And so what's the, what, what, so what do we do with this? Do we just sit there? And he says, because notice what we read again. Look at your Bible. He says right here in verse 2, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it. It almost sounds like Solomon is mad at God. God gave it to him, and God didn't even allow him to enjoy it. And so there are some people, in all honesty, they just they look at God, they look at life, they look at the world, and they say, you know what, it's not fair. And in one sense, maybe it's not fair if you're just looking at this life. If you're just looking at this life, yeah, there's a lot of things that we don't understand. But when you start looking at the, the, the eternity, you know, then you're going to find that, you know, God is not only, you know, he's, he's, he's fair, he's gracious, he's good. And that's where we have to come back to, life under the sun, S-O-N. Paul, the apostle, said in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 7 and 8, when he's about to die, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So you got a choice. you got a choice. We can live for today. We can live for, for that day, whatever this earth thing is. Or you can live for that day. Because that day is eternal. That day you stand before Jesus Christ. Are you living for that day? You have to live every day for that day. Every moment. For that day. You don't take a day off. You don't take a moment off. That's got to be our life. Am I living life under the sun, S-U-N? Or am I living life under the sun, S-O-N? If we live for God, it's never, remember this, it's never vanity. It's never in vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. never in vain. It's always valuable. Remember that. And then in verse 3, he says, If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and his name is covered with darkness, though it has not seen the sun or known anything. This has more rest than that man even if he lives a thousand years twice, but he has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place? Now again, um, Solomon here is an interesting perspective. Imagine having a hundred children, and you might laugh at that, but in those days it was possible. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Uh, His son had 80 children, so he had way less wives, and so more than likely, this is a reality Um, But, you know, you have a lot of kids, you live a long life. In the Old Testament, during those days, that was kind of like the thing. Lots of kids, lots of kids, and a long life. If you can have that, then they were considered it a good life, right? Back then, it was valuable. But the question is, is it? 100 kids, 2,000 years old, good life, is it? Not according to Solomon. 
who at one time was the richest, wisest man in the world, probably handsome, right? Best dressed, most blessed, smartest, most powerful man on the face of the earth. And we would look at him and we would all say, that guy's got a good life. I mean, look at the the car he drives. Look at the house he lives in. Look at how well he dresses. Look at how beautiful his wives are. Look at how many kids he has. I mean, look at how smart he is. He's got everything. He's got the good life. But Solomon here says it doesn't work that way. Even with all that, he says, if the soul is not satisfied with goodness, then it's not good. You know, and if our soul is not satisfied with goodness, that means that our soul is not saved. That means our soul is not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, the goodness, of course, is in reference to salvation, but it's even more than that. Solomon said, if you have all that stuff and you don't have that satisfaction with the goodness of God, then really uh, uh, that type of life is irrelevant. And, And when this person passes, no one would care or attend a funeral service or even bother to bury the body. That's kind of how he sees things. And so, you know, you look at this and Solomon may be talking about himself. I don't know for sure. But I have a feeling that he's seeing things that way. And someone might say, oh, Solomon, you're being a baby. You're, you're bitter. Uh, you're saying that such a person would never, it, they'd be better off if they were never born. And, and, and you know, you can criticize him for, for thinking that. But there are a lot of people who think that. And that's why they want to take their life. That's why so many people commit suicide because they think it would be better not to live than to experience the pain that they're going through. And so you read this and you know, you're like, well, why is that in the Bible? And I think it's because we who live a lot of times in our Christian Disneyland, we need to know that there are a lot of hurting people out there. And if you're one of those, if you get those thoughts sometimes, You need to know that um, it's just humanity, it's life. And and what you need to do is you need to make sure you never give up. And you really got to give your life to the Lord. You got to look up. You know, when you look at this right here, um, again, like I said, there's a lot of mixed messages. There's some truth to it, right? When his soul is not satisfied with goodness, not satisfied with goodness. What does that mean? That you're not satisfied with God. And we need to know this, that I like what one person said. I think it was John Piper who kind of made it popular. He said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied with him. Just him, not anyone or anything else, nothing else. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied with him. And so, you know, I don't know, just in case, you just never know. There might be someone here tonight who's not a Christian. You've never given your life to the Lord and you find that you're just feel empty inside. It's like, you know, you can't seem to fill the void. It's because of the shape inside of us. It's a God shape that only he can fill. And so, you know, we've heard it over the years. You can try all the other things that the world has to offer, but it won't bring peace. It won't bring joy. It won't bring forgiveness. It won't bring salvation. It won't put a smile on your heart. Only God will. So it starts there 
Um, but then not just salvation, but fellowship with him, it brings satisfaction, right? And so that's the, the good, right? Uh, goodness, definitely there. But there's another good. There's another good that we need to hopefully be satisfied with. And you know what they are? The things that are good for you. The fruits and vegetables of life. How many of you guys like fruits and vegetables? How many of you like fruits? How many like vegetables? I'm just curious. Oh, some of you guys are bragging. I don't think that's true. I've seen you over there eating that big old cheeseburger. Yeah, I like vegetables, but don't put any lettuce on it or tomatoes. (laughs) No, um, here's where it gets tough. Because the things that are good for you are not always the things that you want. They're the trials of life. They're the troubles of life. They're the tragedies of life. When it comes to things that are good for us, sometimes they hurt. But for us as Christians, prayerfully we come to a place like right, like it says right here, that, that our soul would be satisfied with goodness. Not all things are good, but all things work together for good. And we have to come to that. You know, as I was thinking about it, and, you know, I, here I am, I'm already 25 years old, and I was just thinking, you know, I have, I have a lot of good things. I mean, I, I, I'm healthy. I, uh, I'm blessed with so many things with my family and being able to be involved in the ministry, and there's a lot of good things. But I'm not always, always going to have it, you know, hunky-dory. I know eventually I'm going to get hit hard and, you know, even today, if you can keep my mom in prayer, I found out that she had this reaction to, uh, uh, I guess there was um, an epidural she was getting for her back, and they said her heart stopped, maybe a heart attack. I'm not sure, but you just, you know, things change, right? And so we got to be ready for those trials. We have to be ready for that. Lord, okay, whatever it is, whatever comes my way, I'm going to hear those words, the bad news. It's all working together for good. And I want you to know this, Lord, and we got to know it going into it, that I'm okay with that. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm satisfied because I know you're most glorified when I'm most satisfied with you. And if you allow this, then I'm good with it. See, and that's where we have to be in life. You know, when our life is one nation under God, one person under God, whatever it is that he's going to send my way, I will rejoice in that. That's where we have to be. You know, in verse 6, Solomon says, we all go to the same place. And, and, you know, maybe he's talking about babies going to heaven and good people going to heaven That's a possibility, but um, more than likely what he's talking about there is that we all eventually die. And so, um, verse 7, it says, All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Now, in some translations it says the soul or is not, the appetite is not satisfied. But the Hebrew word is usually translated soul. And so nefesh, it speaks of your soul. And so um, what we find right here is that you work and you work and you work and you work so you can eat, so you can pay bills. Amen? Hi-ho, hi-ho. Off to work we go. I-o, I-o. <laughs> Off to work we go. So we work, right? Um, but But what I would say to Solomon is... Don't just labor for that kind of food. 
Labor for the soul food. Again, look at verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth. It's for his mouth. And yet the soul is not satisfied. And that's why it's important that we work hard and labor for our soul. You know, because you guys want to feed yourself physically, and that's okay. We have to do that, put food on the table and clothes on our kids' back. But you also have to labor for your soul, and it takes toil sometimes. I mean, it's not easy to get on your knees and to pray. You know, it's not. It's not easy to get sometimes into the Bible because so much of us wants to watch television or, or play games or whatever it might be. And yet, little do you know that if you would just open up that Bible... If you would just open up that Bible and you start taking 10, 15 minutes before you know it, it's so cool. I found myself, usually when, I, when I'm done doing a Bible study and I go home, I always want to eat a quesadilla almost every time, man. But um, if I go home and I'm like, okay, you know what, I'm going to read my proverb for today or I'm going to read my psalm for today. I, for whatever reason, I start losing a little bit of the appetite for the junk food. I'm telling you, maybe I'm exaggerating, but try it if you're, you know, if you feel led. You know, Jesus, in John chapter 4, he went and he met with the Samaritan woman. You guys remember that? What did he do? He did evangelizing. He, he, he proactively, not just reactively, not just, okay, we'll see what happens. No, he said, I want to go over there because I want to I share God's love with this woman who's been hurting and trying to fill the void with all the relationships that she's had all her life. And so now she's shacking up with the fifth guy. And Jesus said, I want to go and I want to I evangelize her. I want to share God's love with her, right? And so while he was there talking to the woman, um, then the disciples came and said, hey, we have food. We have food, food for you. And the Lord said, no, I'm okay. And they're like, no, you know, here's some food. And, and remember what it says there in John 4, verse 34, 30 through 34, they, they went out of the city, came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of the Father, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's my food. That's my food. Is that your food? Is that Manny's food? You know, Paul Solomon says, we're working, we're working, we're laboring, we're laboring to feed our mouth. And what we're, as we read the rest of the Bible, we're like, no, I'm going to work and work and work to feed my soul. Now, I will say this to you guys who came on a Thursday night. Man, I am so proud of you. I wish I could give you all a $5 gift card to In-N-Out or something like that, you know? Although that goes against what I'm just teaching you right now, but I'm just saying, um, praise God for that because, you know, you're investing in something. Laboring for the soul food. You know, later in John chapter 6, it was interesting. You guys remember Jesus fed the thousands. And so as a result of that, they're like, hey, this guy gives good fish tacos. You know, we should make him king. You guys remember that in John chapter 6? And so they were going to make him king. And then Jesus in John chapter 6, he says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. I was reading about one restaurant in Denver. They were offering free food uh, for life. That's kind of an interesting concept. Imagine free food for life if you were a female who could eat this seven-pound burrito. 
So there were three girls that actually had done it. There were other restaurants that were offering free food for life if you got a tattoo in a certain location, stuff like that. So it's out there, you know. And here were these guys in Jesus' day thinking, well, we should make him king because if he's king, we'll get free food for life. And Jesus said to them, man, don't labor for that food. Labor for this food. This is what's important. You know, for us, I pray that we would have that heart, that hunger for him. Verse 8, it says, For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Now, again, like I told you, this is a tough book sometimes, I think, to interpret. I'm not sure if Solomon is is being negative or, or cynical or if he's asking an honest question. And so let's take it that way. If he's asking an honest question, what more has the wise man than the fool? And to answer that question from an honest perspective, I mean, we're talking about uh, the, the wise man. Um, he's blessed. He's blessed in his obedience. The foolish man, I mean, we're talking about, you know, night and day. And so and as far as that goes, and then the second part, he says, what does the poor man have? who knows how to walk before the living. Now, again, maybe he's being cynical, but, you know, saying, well, this guy over here, he knows how to put on a show in front of people. Maybe he's saying that, but if he's talking about a poor man and just asking the question, uh, who maybe what he's saying here is, in one sense, the poor man, it, it many times is better than the rich man, Because sometimes these poor men who know the Lord, they know how to walk, how to be around people. You know, and that's a huge thing. You know, what if he's talking about a poor man who's better than the rich man and that he knows how to walk with people and talk with people, how to conduct himself around others, how to attain and maintain friendships and relationships with people? What if he's talking about a poor man who knows how to love people and the rich man, he doesn't? Who's really rich? You know, for us, I think it's kind of cool the way he says that the poor man, he knows how to walk before the living. You know, I, I think that a lot of times people, they got problems with people. I even read one uh, quote about a, a, a minister who was being, I think he was being facetious. He said, I would love the ministry. I, it's just the people I struggle with, you know? And I was thinking, well, wait a minute. The ministry is all about people. You know, Warren Wiersbe said, ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. And so it's all about people. And so we have to learn, we should learn how to be people, people. We should learn how to love people. We should learn how to walk with people in life. We should learn how to talk with people in life. And if you're one of those and you don't like people, you don't like to be around people, you've you got a phobia with people, you need the Holy Spirit to touch you. We need to be able to love one another. It's so important. How can I walk before people? I think probably the best way, just as a quick side note, is to learn how to walk before God. Genesis 17 in verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to Abram, I am a mighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And so, 
verse 9 is another one that's kind of tough. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Better is the sight of eyes than the wandering of desire. And so, you know, maybe it's like I see it, I have it, I'm blessed by it. You know, I can see it here, but I want more. I want more. And it's not just what God wants for you. We're talking about a wandering desire. That's what he's saying right here. And that's not a good thing. You know, we we see it happen all the time. There are some who wander after their wandering desires. And it it all comes back to this. Again, like I said, you guys, living life under the sun. What does Jesus want for me? Does that mean anything to you? Because I'll tell you what, that should mean everything to you. That's my life. For me to live is Christ. That's my life. And it becomes, if it becomes anything else, then it becomes a wandering desire. And it'll make this man leave his family because he said, well, I just want to be happy. Dude, you don't even know what happiness is because happiness has to do with pleasing God. Happiness has to do with the joy inside of us that puts a smile on God's heart. You know, we're talking about people who do things like that. A man who leaves the ministry, why? Because he wanted more money or the things that money could buy or he wanted more of his own time. I I need more time for me. Because when you become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the, the me time's gone. It really is. He owns everything. You know, Jesus said, if you really want to be great in the kingdom of God, you become a slave, a slave to everyone. And so for us, you know, looking at this, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. Uh, You know, we got to be so careful that we don't follow those desires that wander. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 9 in the New Living Translation, it says, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. You know, when you're, when you're talking about your desires, you know, I don't think that God is one of those gods. God, you know, put desires inside of us. But you have to be in right relationship with him. And so um, Psalm 37.4 is a really cool verse. It says, delight yourself also in the Lord. And he shall give you the desires of your heart. And I think that's how it works. Verse 10, it says, Whatever one is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is a man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. And so whatever one is, he has, it's kind of already been decided. That's what the New Living Translation says. And so in one sense, I think what Solomon was falling into, and I think a lot of people can fall into, is kind of like fatalism. You know, it's like this, 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 it's set and there's nothing that you can do about it. You know, this is me and I'm stuck. And so we have to be aware of that theology. We have to be aware of that, you know, ultra Calvinism. You know, for us, it's a lot different. You know, whatever one is, he has been named already, um, for it is known that he is a man and he cannot contend with him, that's God, who is mightier than he. And so it's true, we can't fight God, we can't contend with God, right? 
but we can and we should cooperate with God. And the way that I always like to say it is aggressively cooperate. Yeah, God is sovereign and God's on the throne. Uh, we, we teach God's sovereignty, but we also teach human responsibility. And, and the way that, you know, we kind of balance that out, you guys remember that statement? It says, pray as if it all depends on God, but work as if it all depends on you. You know, what if you're here and you're like, well, you know, someone told me that I should be the next president of the United States of America, but uh, I could never do that. Or, you know, someone you know, said, hey, you might be a pastor. Oh, I could, I could never be a pastor or, or a doctor or, or a lawyer or whatever it might be, you know. I don't know. I don't know what it would be, you know, because everyone is different, right? And all I'm saying is that, you know, don't be one of those who sits back and says, well, God's going to make it happen. God's sovereign. It's, it's set. and There's nothing I can do about it. No, you, we have to go out and we have to work and we have to take steps of faith and we have to pray about guidance. We have to pray about power. So I, I think what can happen is people can cop out and opt out and think, well, you know, it's already done. There's nothing I can do. No, the, the passage I like to kind of bring things to a balance is Philippians 2, 12 through 13, where it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, here it is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so you work out what God has worked in. God puts desires inside of us and we have to work it out. Don't get caught up in fatalism or, you know, it's all set, you know, there's nothing I can do. Have you guys noticed that, that you're free? Have you guys noticed that? Like right now, let me ask you a quick, just if you could, and I know you don't have to, but just put up your right arm if you would, just for a second, your right arm. See, you're free to do that. Watch, put your hand right, right here. And, uh, just joke. <laughs> We're so free. We're so free. You want to go to school. You want to, you have a vocation. I mean, even today I learned how to do sprinklers. Or was it yesterday? How to do sprinklers. Me, the guy who doesn't know anything. Imagine that. You know, there's so, all I'm saying is don't think that it's not up to you in any way. You pray and you take those steps of faith. Verse 11, it says, Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? And so Solomon, again, he's kind of trippy, man. This, again, is a challenging verse because the Hebrew term, uh, debar, is translated word 807 times and things 231 times. And so if you have an NIV or some of the other translation, it says, since, it says the more words you speak, the less they mean. And so why overdo it? And so it might be saying that, but, but I, I, I think ultimately what, what Solomon is saying is that um, there are many things, things, things that increase vanity. There are many things that distract us from God. There are many things that distract us from God. And so... How is man the better? And I think really kind of what he's saying is that man has a hard time helping man. Really, with all the technology that we have, with all the counseling, with all the human help, with all that kind of stuff, 
is man really better now than he used to be? And the answer is no, because these things, a lot of times these things, these things take us away from God. And again, I don't want to sound oversimplistic, but how much do you pray? Seriously, do you do? Well, I pray while I'm walking. I pray when I'm going, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, undivided attention is very important. You talk to any husband and wife and, you know, let's just say the wife wants to talk to him. He's like, yeah, honey, uh," you know, and he's on the phone and doing all that stuff. Is she really getting his attention? Absolutely not. And she knows it. My husband doesn't pay attention to me because he's doing all these other things, watching television. Well, how about if you sit down and you're looking eye to eye? Hey, sweetheart, how are you doing? Uh, You know, eye to eye, tension. That's how we should give attention to God. That's how we should pray. I believe with all my heart, just like Jesus, he would go away where no one was around and he could spend time with his father. And so all I'm saying is that the things, men, a lot of times they're not really helping. We can converse and counsel and talk and and even teach, and we have things like technology and all that kind of stuff. But does it really make man better? And Solomon here, in looking at this, I think what I would tell Solomon is I would say, Solomon, Solomon, you would have it made in the shade if you would get out from under the sun, S-U-N, and live life under the sun, S-O-N. That's how you change the I to an E and you change the word from bitter to better, right? When you start living your life under one nation, under God, one person, under God, under Jesus, he really is, we go back to the basics, he really is the Lord of my life. Because if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And so he closes in verse 12, for who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his messed up life, (laughs) his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? And so I'm not trying to criticize Solomon. You know, I'm just saying that he was having a hard time during this season of his life. You know, verse 12, again, if you guys would just answer the question, who knows what is good for man in life? God. God does, right? All the days that he calls it vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Who's the answer? God. And Solomon, I think, was worried about what's going to happen. I worked so hard, and I'll bet you my descendants are just going to blow it. And I think he was right in one sense, you know, when you look at his son. But um, we, we can't get tripped up on that kind of stuff. We have to do our best to make this a better world, a better place for our children if the Lord tarries and the human race. And we'll just do our best, and then we've got to commit the rest. That's all we can do. We must not by the vanity, this mentality of Solomon and surrender our faith in the present due to our fear of the future. And I think that's what was messing him up. You know, and and I think what the Lord would say, kind of like what he told Peter, you know, when Peter was wondering about John, he said, Lord, what about this guy? And the Lord said, don't worry about him. You follow me. 
And that Lord would say, don't worry about the future. Don't worry about how it doesn't look fair to you. Don't worry about that kind of stuff. You follow me. And if you do, you guys, he will bless you. I'm telling you, man, he will blow you away. And so we have to live our life under the S-O-N. Huh. And so let me close with C.T. Studd. You guys hung in there. I'm proud of you. So here's a guy who um, left you know, his illustrious sports career. I'm not saying everyone has to do that, but that's what he did. He was this world-famous cricket player. Um, he had everything that life had to offer, but then he gets saved. He turns down the millions of dollars. He gives it all, gives it all away, and uh, you know, he has this beautiful life in which him and his wife, they serve the Lord. He died at 73. She died at 71. It was just an amazing testimony. And you want to know what's cool? C.T. Studd is the one who gave us this phrase. Only one life, soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ 